0: This morning's reading is from Mark 11, um, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, This is God's word.:
1: Good morning. If you're uh, new with us this morning, or it's your first time visiting we've been or maybe you're just back from a, a summer holidays or just kind of getting back in the swing of things. We've been looking at the person of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as Jesus takes his final right turn from the north into Jerusalem and toward Jerusalem, revelations of his identity begin to sharpen as do the responses to his identity. In other words, gone are the sort of fuzzy pictures and the hazy realizations. Who is Jesus? What is he saying? Who is this man? And the responses become very clear. Either responses strongly in favor of knowing, accepting, and being with Jesus, even following him, or strongly negative. Uh, So we're calling this third-to-last turn in the Gospel of Mark, third-to-last, we're calling it Ransom Responses. Last Sunday, we looked at a man who kept seeking God while he waited for God to act. So Bartimaeus, he was ready to respond with persistence to the king who could right the wrongs in his life. And then Bartimaeus responded with the rest of his life. He followed Jesus on the way. As you might be able to figure out from uh, the reading this morning, the shouting in the streets, the hosannas, this morning's response to Jesus is the celebratory response. The celebratory response. Now, in my last semester of going to a seminary, some friends and I took a comparative religions class together. One assignment we had was to visit various places of worship and take part as much as our consciences would allow. Right? We didn't actually want to uh, bow down to the god Vishnu or, or, or any kind of Buddha or Allah or anything like that, but as much as we could participate in the service, we would go and do so. And so one friend went to a mosque, another went to a Hindu temple, and I took on Zen Buddhism. And before the next class, after we had these experiences, we grabbed coffee to share our experiences together. What did we kind of go through? What was it like? And one of the first questions we had for each other was, what was the vibe like when you started to walk from the parking lot or wherever you parked to the front doors of that place of worship, what did it feel like? What was going on? So my friend who visited the mosque said that, uh, you know, as people were entering, everyone just sort of slowly got very quiet. We walked in. We took off our shoes. We sat in the back. As the imam began these chanting these sort of prayers, we were just sort of silent we just tried to have respect. It was a little nerve-wracking. We didn't know exactly what to do, so we just sat in the back. My friend visiting the Hindu temple says, as we approached the doors of the Hindu temple, you could start to smell these strange smells of incense, which was a bit unusual. And then when you got inside, instead of people uh, shaking hands, they would actually actually grab your ankles Uh, in the Hindu temple, which was was bizarre. There was a segregation of genders. And then when you got to your gender, and he was a guy, he said there was just men laying down prostrate on the ground, pretty much the whole service. Then he had Zen Buddhism, which was mine. As I approached the door, walked inside, everybody was kind of spread out on mats, right? Sitting down cross-legged. The instructor just silently nodded, which was code for find a mat and shut your mouth, you know, and then listen to the music. So, We did. And what we kind of discovered from this is that so many of us have been around church for so long that it gave us a chance to appreciate anew the vibe of entering a church, the church of Jesus Christ. Voices and music in the lobby. All right? Songs of thanksgiving and, and our lungs singing to the top to begin every service. And some churches you go to, we've got some areas to grow in this, you, you can just feel it when you start approaching church. If you're five minutes late, the church is just rocking. And you're like, man, are you ready? And that's what church is like. Because while mosques stress the distance of God, Hindu temples, unlocking the mysterious secrets of different gods, Zen Buddhism, the temples there uh, emphasize detaching yourself from the world to God, churches celebrate the scandalous grace of God. The grace of God, redeem people, former enemies, sing songs of good news about the King of Kings who has rescued us. Grace sets Christianity apart and you can hear it. As soon as you walk through the doors of a church, we take it for granted. But what a wonderful truth that is. Nothing like it. In Luke's version, actually, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the religious leaders asked Jesus to quiet down the disciples who were shouting out their hosannas. Without restraint. And Jesus replies to these leaders, he says, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. King Jesus' arrival is such good news that it demands celebration. If not from human beings, then from inanimate objects. This is a response to someone who has freed you when you couldn't free yourself. And there's nothing like celebration. We're going to start here this morning. There's nothing like celebration. It's one, to me, one of the two greatest feelings in the world is self-forgetful celebration. And I mean the good kind of self-forgetting. Not forgetting because you had too much to drink the night before. I mean self-forgetting. You're in a state of, I see what's going on, I'm enjoying this. And there's so many good forms, venues for celebration. Meals, right? We love meals. Laughter. A good comedy. Festivals. Designated holidays. Discovery Day, for instance, here in Cayman has become one of my favorite designated holidays, because we've used it every year as a chance to celebrate the volunteers in our church. Those of you who use your gifts and talents to serve one another, we invite along, we celebrate you, we eat together, we give out prizes. It's great just to celebrate. Uh, Exercises of creativity, fantasy, imagination, artistic endeavors, the imagination of children. Wonderful. I mean, don't you love acting like a kid again in the best sort of way? Yesterday, or a couple days ago, Katie's been having to work at the school this week for in-service school days uh, for her work. And so I had the boys a little more this week. And there's a point that we didn't have anything else to do. So we went to the pool. I read Lord of the Rings to them. This is true, true story. And they acted out scenes from Lord of the Rings around the pool. And I played characters like Strider, Sam Gamgee, things like that, various hobbits. (laughs) All right? and, 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 you know, it's embarrassing. To tell you guys that, but our own kids, it's just freeing, it's fun, it's celebratory. Parties of special occasion. We love weddings and birthdays and anniversary parties and reunions. We have the Krutoffs here this morning. Um, Katie and Brent Krutoff, who are, are back from Cincinnati, Ohio, used to be with us. It, it's, a, it's reuniting, it's a reunion. And it, it, it's just wonderful to be with people again. And that's what we do every Sunday morning, isn't it? The believers and Jesus come back together. We reunite to celebrate the good news about Jesus. So you spend a little more sometimes. You give yourself a little more at celebrations. You, you put up with relational bothers a little bit more at celebrations, don't you? Whether it be in the church or with real family or otherwise. It's worth it. And of course, there's singing. What a great avenue for celebration. Three of my favorite heroes of the faith, uh, outside of the Bible, are uh, Augustine, a man named Augustine of Hippo, uh, Martin Luther, and Charles Spurgeon. 4th century, 16th century, uh, 19th century, they're all dead now. (laughs) Some of the best heroes are dead heroes because they don't disappoint you anymore. They're not alive to do so. so. Um, I love Augustine because he interpreted the world through the Word of God. He, He took the Word of God, and looked at the world through it. And he understood the world around him through God's revelatory Word. I love Martin Luther because he rediscovered for the world the lost message of the Word of God. That salvation is by grace through faith. To be saved by Jesus is a free gift just by trusting Him. And I love Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, because he related the Word of God to everyday people in everyday life and their situation all three also love God's Word put to music and sung. They loved it. So I'm just going to give you examples of the Spurgeon, because I was interested in one of my heroes, what they said about this. He talked of how prayer and praise are akin to spiritual respiration. (sighs) Breathing, right? You breathe in the air of heaven when you pray. You breathe it out again when you praise. I love that idea. He even said that because prayer takes in. There's still an element of selfishness to prayer. But there isn't with praise. It's pure, outward love and, and praise and honor and glory. Luther, I love Luther, said this in a typically curmudgeon Luther way. He said, I have no use for the cranks. This is in the 16th century, mind you. I have no use for the cranks who despise music because it is the gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people merry. They forget thereby all anger, all the anger in them, all the unchastening, all the arrogance in them, and the like. They forget themselves. Augustine, whose view was very radical at the time, because music was was largely distrusted as a thing that only drunk people did, but he said that music and singing in church is worth the risk because. Music and singing are the natural medium, I love this quote, by the way, a natural medium for emotions of exaltation and awed abasement. The idea of lifting up God, humbling self, not worrying about self, and just being in awe of Him. I love that phrase. Exaltation, awed abasement. He summarized beautifully what all three did. Celebration through song stirs up an awe for God And a forgetfulness of self, doesn't it? You forget your cares, you forget your worries, forget your self-preoccupation, all the things you need to do, all the things you need to change. And you just look to God. In a nutshell this morning, this is kind of our message in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this celebration is sustained through self-forgetful sacrifice. Celebration is sustained through self-forgetful sacrifice. This is not to suggest that every emotion during life and in response to Jesus ought to be celebration. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to cry. There's a time just to grit your teeth and keep going. But more of life's mundane is designed to be done with joy, with celebration. I want to get us to that this morning. I want to see that in this passage this morning. What I will suggest is there's a way to sustain celebration, and that is through self-forgetful sacrifice. In fact, self-forgetful sacrifice is what makes the celebration of King Jesus possible in this passage. You may have missed it, but if you look again, there are four acts of self-forgetful sacrifice done before you hear the hosannas and the blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. First, we see a sacrifice of self-respect. In other words, a willingness to look foolish Jesus asked two unnamed disciples in our passage to go into a nearby village, find a very particular cult, which would have been a young donkey most likely, and he says, bring it to me. And if anyone asks you about just taking this cult that belongs to someone else, tell them the Lord needs it. Now, they go and do this, but consider the self-forgetful sacrifice required. These are real people having to go in a village they've likely never been to, And it's not like they could put up the Facebook post that says, hey, looking for a colt out there. If anyone's got one, could you please message me? Right, Preferably one tied to a post somewhere outside a door because Jesus said that. They don't get to do any of that. They just have to go to the village and start kind of looking. Like, um, what are you doing looking for a colt? What do you need it for? We're going to take it. We're going to steal it. (laughs) Actually, Jesus needs it. Imagine, these are real people we are willing to say, okay, for Jesus, I'll do it. We also have the sacrifice of trust. In fact, I started this week, this is part of my imagination, it's kind of crazy, I know. I started this week to write a story, a fictional story about the family who loaned their cult to Jesus, their little little donkey to Jesus. Um, I won't share what I have, but Uh, But but they're real people. These are real people in history. They likely are people who endured broken trust in their lives. Maybe they had people who uh, used them, who took maybe livestock even in the past without returning it, abused their animals. Maybe they vowed, in fact, never to even loan out livestock ever again. Now they have this cult with this whole life ahead of it, this new cult, this special cult, maybe endeared to their children. And all of a sudden, someone asks to take it. For them, it's worth it to celebrate Jesus. It doesn't seem like a sacrifice at all if it's going to the Lord. See, Also, we see sacrifices of dear possessions, don't we? Cloaks, people's outer garments are just given away. First for Jesus to sit on, right? In a utilitarian way. To make a saddle for Jesus to sit upon the young, young donkey. But then... Once there's plenty of cloaks on this donkey, people just throw out their cloaks as an act of submission and honor to this king who's about to ride through their town. Right? They throw down their cloaks. Remember the uh, example we looked at last week of Bartimaeus who threw down his cloak to get more quickly to Jesus? Should remind us of that. And then there's finally the sacrifice of time. People went and they cut down leafy branches from the fields. Whose fields? We're not told. We don't know if there's theirs or someone else's. But they don't think of coordinating the sort of climbing and cutting of trees to cut branches as sacrifices. They want to just go, let's go get these branches, let's bring them, we'll wave them to honor Jesus. None of these people probably thought to themselves, man, i got to sacrifice for God. But they were sacrifices. They just considered them Jesus so worth it that they wanted to do it. And think about it. Uh, you know, dinner, after a long day serving on a missions trip. Or, or the retirement party, celebrating the self, you know, sacrificial service of someone you loved dearly. Maybe it's singing as a family while you're weeding your neighbor's garden. All right? The greater the sacrifice, the richer the celebration, right? And you just enjoy being with people. you do things like singing, you do more things like laughing. The celebration becomes richer. So we see in this story. People forget themselves and sacrifice so Jesus can be celebrated. They just go out of their way for him, forgetting themselves. But unfortunately, our story doesn't end there. Jesus is celebrated, but by the end of the parade, at the place which should hold the greatest shouts of all for Jesus, the temple of God. The temple of the living God where there should be the biggest crowd of all, grandstands waiting for Jesus. Instead, he's all alone with the twelve. They've all gone home. There's no room for him in Jerusalem to stay. As one commentator put it, the whole scene Comes to nothing. What causes celebration to fade and ultimately to cease? This is the question I want to explore next. I think we see little hints of it here. I think it's when celebration curves inward and becomes about you. When it becomes about me. Consider a memorable celebration in your life. When does the joy of celebrating come to an end, typically in those scenarios? Often it's when you start thinking about yourself. Maybe the spotlights put on you because the speech you have to give during the celebration. You're just thinking about it, and you're thinking about it, and it prevents you from enjoying the celebration. Maybe it's something happened to your clothing, right? You got a stain on it. Your tuxedo ripped. You should have worn a probably a tuxedo not from the 1970s or something like that, right? And you're kind of self-conscious about it. Maybe you realize something you just said. Maybe your good friend or your spouse pointed out to you. Do you realize what you just said to everybody? Or, it's what you looked like while celebrating. And all of a sudden, you become self-conscious. And this is what happens. Celebration is drained of joy because of self-focus. When it starts to become about you. I'm going to give you a very simple example. Uh, This happened at a wedding uh, years ago that we attended, Katie and I. It was an afternoon wedding. all right. So a little more muted. Nevertheless, there was some great dancing going on. It was towards the end of the reception, all right? I think Come On Eileen had just played, all right? So it was rocking, the place was, and, and I, we just had to go to the, to the boys' room, and upon washing my hands, I looked in the mirror. As I looked in the mirror, uh, my hair was not parted kind of to the side like it is now, all right? But instead, it, it, it was shaped like this, or like a V. I, I looked basically like Eddie Munster, remember from that show, The Munsters? I, I looked like this. And I didn't realize it until I looked in a mirror. And, and I, the smile of just joy left my face. I, I walked out of the bathroom thinking, man, how long have I looked like this? My receding hairline, et cetera. I, and I asked Katie the same thing How long have I looked like Eddie Munster? Has it been the whole time? Like, did, you know, it was just since I you know, started dancing that I looked like some 1980s guitar player or something like that, you know, with a little haircut going on. She laughed. I don't really know. I, I wasn't paying attention. It's a simple example, but I I lost the joy of celebration because suddenly celebration curved inward. I started looking at myself, thinking about me, and I lost the joy. It was drained from me. I am designed to locate joy outside myself and in one's being celebrated. So the moment I start thinking, what is all this costing me? You ever said that about a celebration? What is all this costing me? How does this make me look? How does this actually benefit me? Well, who's looking out for me? The same moment when joy is drained from celebration and we miss out on those who are meant to be celebrated. As Jesus nears Jerusalem, you got this big crowd and, and, and a frenzy of religious terms are circling about about Jesus. What do we know? We know two things. Joy is drained by the time he gets to Jerusalem. Number two, we know there are a couple details that indicate they miss the one being celebrated. They miss who he really is. I should back up a little. Okay, Jesus is riding into town on the colt of a donkey. And the reason he's doing this is to fulfill a 500-year-old Old Testament prophecy. That we need to look at here for a minute, it's from Zechariah nine nine through ten, and this is a prophecy. Remember, five hundred years earlier, talking about the rescuer, the King to come, who will who will right all the wrongs of life, and ultimately rescue us from death. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now most people only read verse 9, but it's important we look at verse 10. You'll see why in a minute. Now, when people see Jesus riding towards town on a donkey and you're, you're with your friends and you're celebrating, you're out of the parade, the self-forgetful response The totally outward response would be, hey, here he comes, here comes Jesus. Wait, Wait. why is he on a baby donkey? Like, where's the war horse? Where's the war horse of triumph, of kingship, of royalty that we've seen our whole lives and the Romans have flaunted in front of us? Why is he sitting on something fit for a child or a hobbit? And then the logical question is, what does this say about Jesus? What does this say about his kingship, his rule? They would have started to think about this. They would have considered Zechariah 9. Oh, yeah, he says that he's going to come in peace. He says he's going to put away war. Yes. They'll start to consider the strange contrast of the triumphal entry and doing so on a donkey, majesty and meekness, power and weakness. Rule from sea to sea, but not through war, through peace. This is how Jesus comes to us, meekly and lovingly and kindly. You'd think that those who rejected Jesus and walk away from celebrating would do so immediately when they see the absurdity of a man riding on a baby donkey. I mean, think about that. It would look strange. And they'll say, he's not a war general. (laughs) This is no man of majesty. Let's go home. But they don't, do they? That's the interesting thing. They don't go home. Because celebration curves inward. They start to see in Jesus what they want to see. And this happens in our lives, right? We start to see in Jesus what we want to see. They exalt a Messiah of their own making. And we can do the same. We exalt a Messiah of our own making. So they get out the, the... The palm branches that we hear about in Matthew and Luke's account always signified Jewish nationalism and victory. This was all about winning a political and national war. In fact, if you look at Jewish archaeology, you'll see on their coins and on their synagogues these palm branches. It was a sign of when the Messiah comes, he's going to establish a state government and start to rule like David did rule more territory, he'll love God, but he'll also rule over other kings, okay? That's why you also hear shouting not about the kingdom of God, notice that that Jesus has been proclaiming, but about the kingdom of our father David, because they want that kind of kingdom. That's what my Messiah will bring. The hosannas, which literally means save, I pray, Are about, finally, my tribe will be saved and restored to its rightful place. My people will be rightly vindicated. Our salvation will be the removal of this oppressive government and the installment of leaders like me. You hear all those me's and ours? Instead of that humble, outward, self-forgetful, awed abasement that Augustine described of true celebration, it was, what can Jesus do for me? What can you do for me? When today's celebration is over and you go home, will you invite Jesus to go home with you? Or will you leave Him here at the temple? How might you and I continue to forget ourselves and celebrate Jesus when the music fades? And of course, I'm stealing that phrase, when the music fades, uh, from the famous worship song written in 1999, by uh, Matt Redman. Have you ever heard of this song before? There's actually an uh, interesting story behind this song that he wrote. Uh, the senior pastor of Matt Redman's church, uh, which was Soul survivor in Watford, England, he sensed that their worship celebrations, their Sunday morning worship celebrations, were, were kind of moving into a self-serving direction. They sort of become consumers, and Jesus was like the employee. He would serve up for him, them. You know, the, these well-composed worship sets, inspirational messages, and they would just consume and they would take. So for a season, they took away the sound system. The entire sound system, the lights, and the instruments. Just took it away. And they allowed the people to collectively sing at the top of their lungs. They were the instruments. And during this time that, the leadership of the church didn't even suggest songs, in acts of true, self-forgetful sacrifice, someone from the congregation would have to step out and initiate a song. I'm talking in a crowd of thousands, or at least hundreds. Just step out and start singing. Hallelujah. And just hope someone will sing with you. Over these weeks, Mad Redman penned his own response what they'd done in the church and he said this when the music fades and all else is stripped away and I simply come I'm coming back to the heart of worship it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I would love for all of us to so forget ourselves that we would be free to find joy in the mundane of life to get so caught up playing a game and encouraging a child, you forget that you're sacrificing time with Georgetown Primary at-risk kids through our adopt-a-school program. Or you're you're, you're so enjoying a, a sunset that God created so thoroughly that you forget you've gone out of your way to walk your neighbor's dog. Or you're so invested in what someone else is saying so wrapped up in it. You don't consider time spent Doing it, or how your response should be crafted so you sound wise and godly and you give good advice, right? Because you're so, so self sacrificially forgetful. You give in to self forgetful celebration of all God has created and in God Himself. How do we do this, friends? How do we do this? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate self-forgetful sacrifice who can sustain you to live likewise. He is the ultimate self-forgetful sacrifice who can sustain and empower you to live likewise. Consider Jesus at his own sacrifice. Consider how self-forgetful Jesus is. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Consider to Mary. Here is John, your son. To John, here's Mary, your mother, on the cross. To a lifelong criminal, today you shall live with me in paradise. To those who murdered Him, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. This utter self-forgetful sacrifice resulted in joy. We're told in Isaiah 53.10, He will see His offspring his children, he'll prolong his days. The will of the Father shall prosper in his hand. So we sing songs about Jesus' sacrifice. Isn't that amazing? In Christianity, we celebrate the death of our God. At the Lord's Supper, which we'll take in a little bit here, we proclaim Christ's death until he returns. Why? Because in the excruciating Pain and hell Jesus was experiencing. That's where excruciating comes from, by the way. Excruciating. Crucify. Excruciating pain and hell Jesus was experiencing. He considers us. He thinks of us. He loves us. And ultimately saves us. Utterly self-forgetful. Consider something. Even though sin will be gone and every tear will be wiped away, for eternity, we still celebrate Jesus as the Lamb of God ever thought about that? The Lamb of God, our sacrifice for sins. Still see the nails in the wrists. It's in descriptions of heaven and eternity in the book of Revelation, 28 times Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Compared to just four times as King. 28 to 4. Lamb of God, Lamb of God. I'll give you just one example from Revelation 5. Then I looked I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. In other words, this great worship celebration, singing with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth. Notice how the list goes on in praise. Wisdom, might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. To so forget self and celebrate Jesus, that is a great eternity. Years ago, I was reading something by a pastor named uh, Robert Murray McShane, uh, who's also dead. <laughs> the way. He gave some simple advice to find more joy in the everyday of life. He said, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at your Savior. And that is great, actually remarkably practical advice because a lot of us get caught up How we can make ourselves better, right? Or how we can feel better about ourselves as we are, right? Make ourselves better or feel better about ourselves as we are. Most of us live there. So for every one look at the Savior, we take ten looks at ourselves. What's wrong with me? What can I fix? What can I do about this? Or for every one look at the Savior, we take ten looks at ourselves compared to others, Oh, at least I'm better than, at least (laughs) my life is not like. And That's where a lot of us live. There's no joy in that. There's no celebration in that except for celebration ourselves, which ends in misery. We do need to look at the mirror regularly. The Word of God, which shows, we can compare ourselves against its Word, its standard, and allow it to do work, but only that we might see our need for the rescuer, which we also find here. Look at your Savior, friends, who would come to rescue and run your life humbly, lowly on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, who will speak peace to the nations by first speaking peace to your heart, who considers not only so-called good people worth it, his mom, his best friend, but also criminals, murderers, you and I, worth a self-forgetful sacrifice. Hosanna in the highest. Stand with me if you would. Let us forget ourselves and celebrate our Savior through song. Let's sing together.